I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The civil rights movement has a deep history in our city. Here on This Is Nashville, we've talked with the people who were among the first to participate in the lunch counter sit-ins. We've talked about the freedom riders and the legacy of leaders like Diane Nash. But there's an argument to be made for one of the most influential Nashvilleians of the 20th century is attorney Z. Alexander Luby. He was a champion of those who fought for civil rights and a pariah to those who opposed equality. And that made him a target. On this day, April 19th, 1960, his house was bombed. Later this hour, we'll learn more about the man, the bombing, and the legacy he left behind. But first, Nashville's Metro Council has moved a step closer to approving a new football stadium for the Tennessee Titans last night. In recent years, few topics have triggered such intense debate on council Matt chambers, in the council chambers, pardon me. WPLN's Cynthia Abrams was there to cover the debate and the vote last night. She joins us now with the latest. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Khalil. I know you had a late night, so we really appreciate you being here. Welcome back. Thank you. Okay, so now before we get into how the council voted, this was such, such a big moment. There was even demonstrations on the steps of City Hall. Tell us what that scene was like there and also what it was like inside the council chamber. So opponents of the Titan Stadium deal have been organizing a number of demonstrations over the past few months to express their frustrations with the deal. A group of 30 or so activists had gathered outside the courthouse yesterday, and they held up signs that read, Fun schools, not stadiums, and don't silence our voices. A number of organizers spoke, including community activist Odessa Kelly, who closed the protest. So every time that you run over a pothole, yeah. you think about all the billions Break of dollars that yeah. your elected Break official gave yes. to the Tennessee Titans. Yes. We ain't got millions of dollars like the other side does to sell you false narratives. But what we do have is your best interest at heart. So many of these protesters then made their way into the council chamber and the gallery was fully at capacity. Because of this, many protesters remained out in the hallway for the duration of the meeting. And throughout the night, you could hear chants from outside as protesters called, we want a public hearing. Well, what about inside the chamber? So this definitely heightened emotions at an already tense meeting. And you know, you can tell that after so many months of buildup, a lot of the 40 council members know where they stand and how and why they disagree. Here's council member Ginny Welsh. I really don't care about the Titans. Love to have the team, but my concern as a council member isn't the Titans and what is best for the Titans. It's what is best for this city. But across the group, there's a huge range of opinion on whether or not this deal is one that is good for the city and its constituents. Some council members really see the Titans' interests lining up with benefits for the community. There were also many amendments introduced last night, and many of these were at odds with each other. And, you know, the sides are really entrenched. There were even some procedural tactics going on during the meeting with some council members trying to cut off debate while others said the moment was too important to rush. Mm. So, you know, this idea of a new stadium has been moving along for some time. Why was this moment so crucial? Yeah, so the council has been working on this deal for quite some time. Um, they formed a special committee to start digging into the specifics of the proposal and the costs back in the summer of 2022. 
And then in October, Mayor Cooper and the NFL reached an agreement. But this agreement can't actually move forward until it is approved by the Metro Council, where it is subjected to a series of three votes. What's the difference between these votes? I mean, why the second? Why is the second most the one the most important? Yeah. So the first vote, the first reading is purely procedural. It's the second reading where changes to the deal can actually be made as amendments are finalized. And because amendments can't usually be introduced on the final reading, the second vote becomes the most important of the three. And last night's second reading was actually the second attempt at a second reading. Two Mm. weeks ago, the council voted to defer the vote until last night. So there's a lot of process to keep track of. Okay, so what happened last night? So a number of amendments were introduced, more than 30, most of which failed, although a handful did pass. And after approving those amendments, the council did vote to move forward with the overall deal to a third and final reading next week. The vote was 25 members in favor of advancement with 11 opposed. Um, So there will be a special called meeting next Tuesday that will likely be the decisive moment. All right. So let's get a little bit deeper into the specifics. The council had a major disagreement about one part of the amendments. What's that all about? Yes. So two weeks ago, council member Brandon Taylor introduced an amendment that kind of reworked the fee structure of the tickets for non-NFL events that the stadium would host. This could be other types of sports or concerts or things like WrestleMania. Mm. Um, And initially in the deal reached between the mayor and the Titans, every non-NFL event would have a $3 fee tacked onto ticket prices. This would go into a fund that the Titans could use for stadium maintenance. But Taylor's amendment would have changed this fee into a percentage that would increase over time. And the first $3 of that percent would still go to the Titans, but the remainder of the funds would then go to the city. And his amendment narrowly passed, but it immediately sparked outrage from the entertainment industry and the Titans. And even last night, a Metro legal team said that going through with an amendment like this would be a, quote, deal killer. Mm. And so in response, council member Jennifer Gamble introduced a similar but watered down version of the amendment. Um, Her amendment caps the amount of rent money shared with Metro at no more than 3% cost of the average ticket. And her amendment ended up passing with 23 voting in favor, which effectively eliminated Taylor's previous amendment. How did people react after the vote? So the meeting did end just before 1 a.m., so pretty Mm. tired. But I know at least the mayor was happy. Um, Mayor Cooper released a statement that praised the Metro Council for their diligent and thoughtful consideration of the deal. And this decision is such a big moment for Nashville. This would be the most expensive civic project in city history. It's more than $2 billion dollars. And there are a lot of complex layers to how it's being paid for and how it would change the East Bank. You can hear from council members that they understand the magnitude. So when they meet next, it will truly be an inflection point for the city. Okay, so speaking of when the council meets next, you said the stadium is likely the the stadium will likely face its final vote next week. What are you watching out for? Yes. So the reading, the next reading is scheduled for next Tuesday, April 25th. And this is the deal's final vote. But first, Councilmember Angie Henderson did succeed last night in getting her motion for a public hearing through. There's a lot of disagreement around this. Some feel as if the deal has been discussed extensively, while others say it wasn't until last night that residents really got to see the final amended proposal. 
So Henderson said at one point that it was, quote, inappropriate and tone deaf to not hold a public hearing for something of this magnitude. So that hearing, which will also take place next Tuesday, will be capped at four hours. Henderson has asked to allocate two hours to each side. So I will be watching for that. Okay, that is WPLN's midday news reporter, Cynthia Abrams. Cynthia, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for your reporting. Get some rest, okay? Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the life of civil rights lawyer and former Metro Council member Z. Alexander Luby and explore the bombing of his home that happened 63 years ago today. What do you know about Luby? Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Nashville has been and continues to be home to some amazing individuals, people who stand up in the face of oppression and fight not just for themselves, but for entire communities. One person in particular who has set a very high standard when it comes to this kind of work is Z. Alexander Luby. Luby was a prominent civil rights attorney and Metro Council member. And while his name may not be well known um, as as well known as others in the area, Luby was at the center of many of the civil rights advances in Tennessee. So who was he? How did his work and dedication impact history? My next guests are here to help us understand the man and his work. Ludi N. Wallace is a former Metro Council member and was once represented by Z. Alexander Luby. Betsy Phillips is a historian who is writing a book on the bombing of Luby's home and a contributor for the Nashville scene. And Elliot Robinson is the program specialist in the Special Collections Division of the Nashville Public Library. Thanks to you all for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Really excited to have you here. So let's begin talking about who Z. Alexander Luby was. Betsy, where was he from? And tell us, how did he get to Nashville? Well, so he was originally from the Caribbean. He came to, he was born in 1899 and he came, I believe, first, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, to New York as an orphan in his teens. Um, he came to Nashville for a little bit, then went to Memphis, where he married a school teacher, Grafta, and then came back to Nashville. He had been teaching at Fisk, but when he came back, I, that's when he got into his law practice. Do you know why he decided to become an attorney? You know, I really don't. Like, this is one of the drawbacks, I think, to why. Luby isn't better known is because there hasn't been a good biography about him. It, when you read about him, it seems like everybody's quoting each other. Mm. <laughs> and so there really is a lot of room to be doing more research on who he is. And I'm hoping a historian will step up and do that. Okay. Needs to be done. Now, Mr. Wallace, you knew Z. Alexander Luby personally. What was he like? He was a fearless man. He was a fearless man. And I think part of the reason why uh, he went in uh, the direction he did in his career is because of his color. Now, if he was living, he'd probably be 120 years old Mm -hmm. if he was still living. 
So you can imagine how it was many years ago if you were of color. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Mr. Luber did get a law degree from Howard University, and then he went on to Columbia University to get another degree uh, in law. And he ended up taking a job at Fish University. And But when he took the job at Fish University, he had already gotten the law degrees. Mm-hmm. And while he was there at Fish, he, took, he was admitted to the bar here in Tennessee. And that's when he uh, went into practice. And he was one of the few lawyers being black in Nashville at the time. And he was even uh, fewer when it came to representing young blacks that were protesting. Well, t- tell, tell me about his standing in the community real quick. What, what was his reputation like? He had a, he had a, I would say, a, he, he, he had a perfect reputation. He was married. He lived in the community on Meharry Boulevard in a modest home. And when I compare then to now, mm-hmm. I can't remember him being in a controversial type situation with other so-called leaders. Mm -hmm. See, down through the years, I can remember there were conflicts between Avon Williams and maybe attorney Robert Lillard. Uh, Looked like when it came to politics, they would always be on the opposite side. Uh, Mr. Luby uh, was a Republican, and most of my brothers and sisters were Democrats, but I cannot recall a single time that it was a conflict uh-huh. with these other people that might have been different. What was your friendship like with him? Well, he was kind of, he wasn't a showboat. Uh, and I didn't I didn't do nothing sociable with him, mm-hmm. but I did get to know him. I did have a chance to visit him in his home, visit with him and his wife, and uh, I think I think he kind of liked me, you know, because I don't know whether he liked me because I was controversial. Uh, I was militant. That's how they used to refer to the young people mm-hmm. back in the day as militants. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to have been meant you were bad. And the way I would define militant, I would say that if you're a militant, it means that you're a good person. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than to accept that label. Yes, sir. Of them making a militant being bad. And... And he was elected to the city council in 1951. And 
he uh, decided not to run in 1971. So I, I ran for a seat. And I, I'm, I feel honored today that he endorsed me mm. for a man of his stature to endorse me. And it was uh, C.J. Walker that was a close sociable friend with Luby that helped uh, set that endorsement up. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's pretty amazing. Now, now, Elliot, you oversee the Civil Rights Room and collection at the library. You've you've had an opportunity to learn about Luby. What was your knowledge of him before you got there? Uh, well, I had no knowledge of him before I got there, um, but just uh, being there and, and being able to read about the man and study the man, and, and then like Betsy said, everything you hear is something that somebody else said. So I, you know, went to consult our oral history collection to see what some people said about Luby, and uh, find some interesting stories like uh, John Sigenthaler talking about Luby working for the Tennessean as an attorney, but kind of on the low, uh, very, very quietly. Uh, and also uh, something that Rip Patton said in his interview, he said that Luby was a soft-spoken man, but when he talked, it was like E.F. Hutton, mm. that people listened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he got a lot done in his, in his legal career leading up to uh, being uh, elected to the council, uh, fighting to equalize teacher salaries. Uh, this is the early 40s. Uh, there was a, a scene in the courtroom where school superintendent Bass uh, said that you know black people don't need enough. They don't need as much money to maintain their standard of, of living as white people do. Uh, so Luby challenged him and said, "Was well, so are you in the practice of going around to the black teachers' houses and checking on their standard of living?" Uh, so he, he won that case. Um, and then of course um, helping black doctors be able to practice in white hospitals, uh, segregated parks, um, you know, and then dealing with threats and intimidation tactics all, the whole time. Uh, and then, you know, getting on to council and uh, desegregating places like the Parthenon, airport restaurants, and things like that. So, so a, a very tall tree, a giant of a man. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the seminal moments of his work came in the Columbia riots of 1946. Betsy, tell us about the riots and the conditions that led up to Luby getting involved. Right. Well, so an important thing to understand is that the riots came on the heels of World War II. So black veterans who had been in Europe fighting for, you know, truth, justice in the American way came home and were like, well, why why am I fighting for freedoms over there that my country won't give me here? So even among like the most conservative black veterans, there was a feeling of like, you know, something's not right back here at home. So what happened with the Columbia riot is that a veteran was home. His mother was getting her radio repaired in downtown Columbia And um, for some reason, there was a dispute between her and the white man behind the counter. And they got into a fight and the veteran intervened. And depending on what story you read, threw the white guy through the plate glass window. But then um, there was, you know, so outrage in the white community that this could happen. So they tried to form a lynch mob and go into the black neighborhood and, you know, have their revenge. But little did they understand that all these men now had military training and were armed. Mm. So the veterans basically set up 
you know, snipers and were able to keep the white citizens out of the neighborhood. What ended up happening is that the cops came into the neighborhood, the white cops, and they were the ones who, for all practical purposes, rioted. They threw bricks through windows and burnt places. And then there were mass arrests of the quote unquote rioters, the Hmm. black people in the neighborhood. So um, the reason that Luby got involved is basically because there was not a civil rights event in Tennessee while Luby had a law license that he wasn't somehow tangentially involved in. I mean, you just cannot overstate his importance and also just how much for all his importance he has vanished from the landscape, which is a real shame. Um, But so he... The NAACP brought him in and Maurice Weaver, who was a white man from Chattanooga. Luby was seen as a civil rights attorney and Weaver did some civil rights cases. So there's a slight difference. And then the NAACP also sent in um, Thurgood Marshall, Mm -hmm. but he had been sick. So most of the actual lawyering during these cases fell to Luby and he was able to get everybody but one person completely off and then the one person i believe his sentence was commuted or somehow but it was all mostly positively resolved there was a lot of violence a couple of people were killed but how i like to frame this just in terms of thinking about it is that only 10 years before that albert williams had been lynched in brownsville he was an naacp leader the police came to his house and took him, and he was never seen alive again. And 10 years later, Luby had managed to figure out how to make the justice system work at least sometimes for black people. Mm. And I, I think you could make a case that before that, black people just did not have access to justice in Tennessee, and Luby was instrumental in opening at least a sliver of the justice system to them. They won that case, Mm -hmm. but the danger they were in wasn't over. Oh, right. right. Yes. Right. So the story then goes that um, the three attorneys are on their way back to Nashville. Thurgood Marshall is in one car and Luby and Weaver are in another. And as they're leaving town, the police pull Thurgood Marshall over and arrest him although there's some that arrest was never recorded, but they took him into custody and then proceeded to drive with him. And Luby and Wallace looked at each other because they realized the police car was not turning around to go back to town. Hmm. So they just spur of the moment decided to follow the car. And which is, you know, obviously very brilliant because they had a white guy, Maurice Weaver. So I think that they were, the police, I think, got nervous about doing anything to Marshall with there being a white witness who was obviously opposed to whatever they were going to do. So eventually they pulled over and just dropped him on the side of the road and Luby and Weaver were able to get him and bring him back to his car. But um, like I said, you know, 10 years before police had killed an NAACP leader. So 
was completely reasonable to believe that they intended to kill Marshall. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the work of legendary attorney and former Metro Council member Z. Alexander Luby with Betsy Phillips, Elliot Robinson, and Ludi N. Wallace. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. So, no, Luby was working to defeat segregation and injustice in courts. Other folks were taking a little bit of a different tack. Mr. Wallace, you were a young student at TSU during the Civil Rights Movement. What were those times like for you and your peers? Well, we, we marched, uh, and it was during a time when Stokely Carmichael and uh, Reverend Belleville, these were people that were coming around and coming to the colleges to encourage students and lead students and Ralph Brown was through this time. And um, uh, I don't know how it happened, but it seemed like all the students, they were rebelling. Mm. They were part of a protest. Uh, we used to march all the time. And uh, there were students that did go sit in. And there were students that I knew that went to sit in and that would go be a freedom rider. Mm -hmm. And I would uh, would attend all the organizing meetings. And it was a church. First Baptist Capitol Hill. It used to be on the Capitol Hill. They got a big new church now. And that's where uh, they would get training. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where we would get training for the non-violent move. Did, but, you, did you participate in any of the sit-ins? No, sir. Uh, I, I couldn't subscribe to the non-violence. Mm-hmm. If anybody had stuck a cigarette to me or if they had spit on me, uh, my philosophy was try and disable them mm-hmm. by knocking them out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the way my mother raised me. If anybody hits you or do anything to you, hit them back. So okay. I, I figured out that if I got to hit you, I need to knock you out where you came. Hit me back. Yes, sir. I understand that totally. Mm-hmm. Now, also, but I also understand that Luby had once represented you in court. Can you tell us briefly about that? Well, I, I used to have a, a bill tavern. And to be honest, this may be a bad time to say this. I like guns. So I had a lot of guns. And back then, I didn't know no better. I would always keep a gun with me. Mm-hmm. So I got arrested and charged with carrying a concealed weapon. So Luby represented me. And uh, the judge made some reference to me other than my name. And Mr. Luby uh, stood up in the court and challenged the judge by saying my client's name is Ludie Wallace. 
the judge had addressed me in some other manner. Mm-hmm. And I kind of liked that about him. And I think he kind of liked me because uh, I, I wasn't fearful. See, fear, fear is an enemy. So Luby was not fearful of anything. And I can't think of anything that I'm afraid of mm-hmm. other than maybe a snake. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, fear is the enemy. Yes, sir. And, you know, Luby, he represented many of the young people who were involved in, in the civil rights demonstrations at the time. Elliot, tell me, why, why did he decide to take on those cases from what you know? Well, he was, uh, from what I understand, he was very supportive uh, of, of the students from the beginning. Um, uh, I thought that it, maybe he wasn't, but it, what it was was the people in the NAACP would kind of frowned on the, the mass action tactic. They wanted to focus on on, on legal advances more so. Um, but but he he was very impressed at how you know and, and the way the students put pressure on the merchants, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and being nonviolent and doing things that way. Uh, so he he signed right up to uh, to represent them and put together the crack team of lawyers. Uh, I always tell people in the civil rights room, every one of them has got something named after him in town now. Mm. Uh, Robert Lillard Elementary, you got Avon Williams, campus of Tennessee State. And um, uh, 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 what's the other one, Betsy? Come on now. Birch, Adolfo oh. Birch, <laughs> the courthouse downtown, newest courthouse downtown. Put me on the spot. <laughs> so so he, was this, he was this leader who... who, who gathered these wonderful attorneys, kind of trained them and led them in this... You mentioned something about the NAACP. The NAACP disagreed with the tactics that young people were taking, but Mr. Ludi himself, Luby himself, was impressed with what they were doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. That seems like a generational divide. What was that? Talk to us a little bit about that generational divide back then, Betsy. Sure. Well, one of the things that I found when I was going through Luby's papers at Fisk is that, at least personally, he did have more of the opinion that the NAACP had, that he was a little like, I don't know what these kids are doing. But I actually deeply respect that because his position was, well, you know, fine, we'll do our thing that's working our way, and if the kids are going to do this, then we're going to support them. So even if I personally think that this might not be the right tactic to take, at least they're doing something, and they deserve community support. And he had a reputation, which he he seemed deeply flattered by, but also, you know, like a little embarrassed by, that he never lost a case. Now, Mm -hmm. he said this wasn't true, but that was his, you know, so just having him on your side was kind of a signal to everybody, like, I've got this guy, you know, like, the superhero is with me. I even discovered down in Chattanooga, there was a black attorney whose, excuse me, his porch was blown up. And the next very next day, he was back in court and a reporter asked him, like, well, what are you doing here? My gosh, there's this violence against you yesterday. And he was like, well, it's going to take a little more than blowing my porch up to keep me out of court. Mm. And he's like, and even if they kill me, he's like, Luby will just come down here. Oh. And so I was like, oh, wow, he's Luby is like the good guy boogeyman, right? Mm-hmm. Like other lawyers are using him as like, you, you know, you can deal with me or we can just bring Luby down here. As the kids would say, he was that dude. Right. He yeah. was that dude. OK, so we, we see that his work put him at odds. 
with the justice system? What types of reputation did he have amongst judges, lawyers, and police at that time? Right. Well, they did not like him. In fact, mm. he told a reporter once that the only— pr he never, at least as far as he knew, had problems with the Klan because he said, you know, I was never out in the streets— all my problems were with lawyers and judges and police officers. And he certainly, like, one time um, opposing counsel tried to fist fight him mm. but because, you know, it was just really unbearable for white people, especially privileged white people, you know, judges, prosecutors, to have to show respect to Luby. I think it was also probably tinged with the fact that he was great. Like, so it wasn't even just that, like, oh, no, I, I have to go up against a black lawyer. It's like, I have to go up against one of the best lawyers I'm ever going to face. And he's black. Mm -hmm. Like, so that was like a double insult for them. Um, but as Mr. Wallace said, he was fearless. He just did not. You weren't going to frighten him away from doing what mm -hmm. he thought was right. And because of that fearlessness, he was also seen as a threat. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about what happened on this day 63 years ago when a bomb exploded in North Nashville outside of the home of Z. Alexander Luby. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been discussing the life and the work of civil rights attorney and former Nashville Metro Council member Z. Alexander Luby. He was a pivotal figure in the civil rights movement and represented young activists in court. This made him a respected community leader, but he was also despised by those who opposed equality. So much so that on this day, April 19th, 1960, his house in North Nashville was bombed. Both Luby and his wife, Grafta, made it out safety. But to this day, the culprit has still not been identified. Our guests are Met former Metro Council member Ludy N. Wallace, historian Betsy Phillips, and Elliot Robinson from the Nashville Public Ro Library's Civil Rights Connection Collection. Thanks again to you all for being with us today. Really appreciate it. So... You know, before we get to talk about the bombing of the house, let's set a little context. Elliot, what was happening in Nashville during that time? Well, beginning in mid-February, uh, students uh, trained in nonviolence by Reverend James Lawson began to stage these sit-ins at the uh, downtown lunch counters in order to dramatize, you know, a lot of the indignities that people faced, you know, being a shopper of color downtown. So by this time, by the time of the bombing, it's been going on for two months. And there's been uh, a lot of chaos in the streets. It's grown very quickly. Uh, something that wasn't codified as illegal initially has now been uh, made illegal. There's a sit-in ordinance added to the disorderly conduct law, mm. uh, which is what they use to justify arresting these orderly and peaceful students and not the people who are perpetrating the violence against them. Uh, but uh, sometime in March, you get the idea of an economic boycott that kicks in. Uh, it's Easter season, shopping season, big-time shopping season downtown. And 98% of the black community honors this boycott. Uh, and this puts a 
big strain on the merchants. Imagine the, the coins falling out of their pockets and imagine those chain stores with uh, corporate offices up north. They're getting those phone calls, you know, like what's going on with the bottom line here. And uh, and this is this is what the bombing kind of serves as the 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 really galvanizing event to take things over the top because the whole community is already involved in the boycott. I don't want my grandmother at the lunch counter getting beat down and thrown in the paddy wagon, but I can say, Grandma, don't spend your money downtown. Mm-hmm. So the whole community is already involved, and uh, seeing the the injustices that these students are going through, you know, being arrested and beaten up and, and you know paraded through court, and uh, and then this event really takes things to a new level. Now, Betsy, there's also some context in accordance to the timing of this bombing, right? Right, yes. So an important thing to know that I discovered, that seems like a weird word for things that people at the time knew, but so the Tennessean in early April had run a story in which they quoted um, Reverend Kelly Miller-Smith that Reverend Martin Luther King was going to come and speak at War Memorial Auditorium on April 18th. Mm. That got moved, but it was never reported in the white papers that it was moved. The other thing that I find really interesting about the timing of the bombing is it happened early in the morning, but after the Tennessean was being delivered. So the liberal paper could not cover the bombing as it happened. So the main way that people would have learned about this bombing and learned about, like, were there suspects? Who should I be on the lookout for? All the stuff that would have made kind of instantly solving the crime possible couldn't happen. So I think that the timing, that timing is very interesting because by the time the banner came out in the evening, and the banner was the more conservative paper. Um, their front page was taken up with outrage about the silent march that took place mm. after the bombing. Um, so it really didn't get the same kinds of coverage that the other two bombings had gotten. Okay. Now, Mr. Wallace, we, where were you when this happened? Uh, I'm, I might have been in Washington, D.C. I went to Washington, D.C. for a couple of years. Uh, but... That seemed like a real short period of time because even though I went to D.C. for a while, I came right back after a couple of years, and everything was happening Mm -hmm. seeming like when I got back. The marches and Stokely and all of the student individuals, Mm -hmm. uh, H. Ralph Brown, um, T- tell me this: when when you heard that Z. Alexander Luby's house was bombed, what did you think? Well, first thing that came to my mind was Ku Klux Klan, because mm. they had a tendency to do bombings and burn crosses. That's how they would uh, intimidate anybody that was. Uh, fighting for the civil rights. They'd burn a cross or either they'd bum you. And uh, Mm -hmm. so, but I want to say this, uh, thinking about people that have made a difference here in Nashville, and you mentioned the people that we had named Billings. uh, Mm -hmm. So I was, I felt good that 
when I was first elected to the city council that uh, a proposal was to name a new library after Z. Alexander Lube. I had a chance to vote on that. And I also had a chance to vote on, uh, I was in the council when they named the Fire Academy after mm-hmm. former councilman Bob Lillis. He used to be a councilman. Uh, Lube and Lillard was the first two black council members. Yes, sir. And um, believe it or not, I was a friend of Judge A.A. Birch. We used to play golf together. (laughs) And then we was building a new criminal, a new courthouse. Yes, sir. It's wonderful, the legacy that you have in this town and the connection you have to these historical figures. But I I do want to get back to this Uh, investigation a little bit. mm -hmm. Betsy, how did this investigation after this bombing really take place? Right. Well, so this was some information that I was able to find that really surprised me um, because Mayor West, I think, at least in our historic memory, has a, you know, a reputation, like a goldfish or a misguided puppy. Like, he's just not somebody, um, even when, if if you listen to old interviews of him talking about Diane Nash, he's like, well, I I was afraid. I knew she was afraid. Just, Hmm. so imagine my surprise when I discover that the person running the investigation into the Luby bombing from the start was Mayor West. Uh, mm. He came to the scene almost immediately after the bombing. He began to collect evidence. He interviewed witnesses. He um, chased down leads. And this is all happening while at the same time, the students are organizing their march. But They're all in North Nashville together. And... I am deeply suspicious. He did an interview with Lem Dawson, who was the night watchman at Fisk. And in that interview, um, he led the interview, but sitting with him was the chief of police, the chief of detectives, and then Avon Williams, which is highly unusual for the law partner (laughs) of a victim to be in an interview with. Um, But I think that West... Because there had already previously been two bombings, Hattie Cotton Elementary School and then the Jewish Community Center, and neither of those bombings had been solved. Mm -hmm. And so I think Mayor West was afraid that once again, we were going to have an unsolved bombing. And in this case, at this moment, it was a politician, a Nashville city councilman. So I think he really wanted it to be solved, and he was trying very hard to signal to the chief of police and the chief of detectives that he expected these leads that he was bringing them to be followed up on. And I think uh, it's really telling that obviously even he was not powerful enough to make that happen. Uh, and I couldn't find any papers of Mayor West. Like that, that is another big hole in the history where it would be nice to have some insight into mm-hmm. what drove him to that because, you know, I mean, we were a city. This isn't, you know, like a small town where the mayor might also be the chief of police or the dog catcher. You Mm -hmm. know, you don't, I'm still very shocked by it. It just makes 
no sense. The, the FBI was also investigating this, but they also had other interests at the time, right? Right, yes. Um, the FBI was... It's generous to say that they were investigating this. Um, I think that they were attempting to um, not investigate this. And there, there are a lot of reasons for this. One is that they were at least attempting to implement, if they had not already implemented it, um, a program that they would solidify by the mid-60s where they were taking over the Klan. So they were... At the least, if they had not already at this point taken over the Klan, they for sure were gathering Klan informants mm -hmm. and trying to make those informants comfortable with taking orders from the FBI. So there was a lot of protection of Klan members by the FBI. So anything that might lead to a Klan member the FBI was making it very difficult for Nashville police to ever get there. And there had already been such distrust because um, the Hattie Cotton bombing investigation basically ended up with the Nashville police and the FBI in, in a battle. The FBI hid witnesses from the Nashville police. The Nashville police beat witnesses that the FBI did not want them to have. No, mm -hmm. no good guys on either side. But like after that, there were the level of cooperation between and trust between the FBI and the Nashville police was completely gone. So the, the, the investigation ended up going nowhere. Yes. But the protests, they led to this seminal yes. moment <laughs> where Diane, young Diane Nash confronted Mayor West about segregation. Now, Elliot, what does that tell you about the magnitude of these times? The community standing up together in unity is powerful. Uh, and this march was one of the most powerful statements, you know, that, that I think the city has seen. Uh, imagine a 10 block long line of people coming down Jefferson Street through the heart of North Nashville, three by three on the sidewalk, and it's totally silent. Uh, the March begins with about 1,500 people, starts at Tennessee State's campus. And as it come down Jefferson Street, you pass Fisk and more people jump in. You pass the corner where Pearl High is up the street and uh, people streaming out of there, the administrators and stuff couldn't hold them back. And then just the sight of it is drawing people in in, in itself. I always tease our, our, when we have students in the room, I try to, you know, you slip something in to make sure people are paying attention. Mm -hmm. So I say they went from 1,500 to more than double that by the time they got downtown. Who put, who put it on social media, right? And they, they look at my white beard and they think I was there. And they say, well, you didn't have social media then. <laughs> and, uh, but, but they are paying attention. These young people are paying attention. But uh, the mayor couldn't even see the end of the line before he starts to get engaged with uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who took, to, took, his, took, took the first shot and uh, told the mayor he wasn't handling his business. He wasn't handling the moral responsibility of his office. Uh, you know, he's not doing anything to, to stop these, these hate mongers and the violence. And uh, he's, he's not doing the right thing by these students who are nonviolent and they're not doing anything, you know, uh, to, to be destructive in this city. And uh, Diane took it, took over and asked him of the very simple but a very personal question. Uh, Mr. Mayor, do you feel that it's wrong for people to be discriminated against just because of their race or color? Mm -hmm. And the mayor said later he had to answer the question as a man and not as a politician. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's where you get that ripple in the pond where he's uh, 
coaxed into admitting he believes that it's wrong for people to be able to be buying merchandise in the stores but not served at the counters. Mm-hmm. And that was a very specific uh, tactic, you know, from, from the, the teachings of, of Reverend Lawson, uh, to use those questions, you know, to, to make people kind of commit or at least have to, have to weigh a decision. Mm-hmm. And Betsy, we only have a couple minutes left, but what do you want people to know about Luby's legacy? Well, I, for me, I think the important thing is I truly believe if he wasn't the most important and influential person in Tennessee of the 20th century, he is at least in the mix for just being arguably so important. Because like I said, before him, black people in Tennessee did not have justice. The justice system was not available to them. And after him, we we have so many advancements that have his name on them. And he made such a statewide difference. And yet he's barely remembered in Nashville, let alone has he ever gotten the props he deserves at the state level. No. And that's just really a shame because he was this brilliant, passionate man who, like, you know, was fearless and made such a huge difference. I mean, we all owe him a great deal of gratitude and as nice as, you know, having a library for him is, we need for people to know the person that library is named for. Mm-hmm. And well, I want to thank all of you all for coming onto the show and talking about the life and the legacy and the work and the impact that this man, Z. Alexander Luby, left to us all. My guests were Ludie and Wallace, former council member who was once represented by Z. Alexander Luby, Betsy Phillips, historian and contributor for the Nashville scene, and Elliot Robinson, program specialist in the Special Collections Division of the Nashville Public Library, who oversees the Civil Rights Room and the Civil Rights Collection. Again, thank you all for being with us today. Thank Thank you. you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll talk with Paul Vasterling, the artistic director of the Nashville Ballet, who is stepping down after 25 seasons. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our episode was produced by Rose Gilbert. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our producer is Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Namir Blade. Special. Sorry, no special thanks. Special thanks to you all for listening in to this episode. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.